Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group and we're in volume 11, which is titled The Realms of Existence. We're going to be studying chapters 61 through 70 today. The way that we do this program is I invite students that are in Zoom to read one of the chapters. And then as you read the chapter, the rest of us can be listening and learning from that. Then after someone reads, I will share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any and all questions that you guys might have. If you're reading these books either before class or after class, you'll get much more benefit out of this program because there's content there that will help you to learn above and beyond what it is that I'm sharing in the class. But nonetheless, there's some students that might not be able to read or maybe this is your first time to come to the class so you can study with us here in this program. So if you do decide to read either before or after class, you'll find much more benefit because the detail that I can share in the book is far beyond what I'm able to share in the class. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly, and then at the same time, invite anybody who's in Zoom. If you would like to read any of the chapters, you can do that by electronically raising your hand, and then I'll see that and be able to call on you. And then after you read the chapter, I'll share some teachings on that to be able to help everyone to learn and understand what it is the Buddha is sharing, just as reflections to be able to help you to be able to understand how to gain insight out of this particular teaching and then implement it into your practice. Because when the Buddha teaches, he teaches very clear and very concise. So you don't need me to necessarily explain it to you, but more helping you to reflect on it to gain insight and benefit from it. So if there's anyone in Zoom that would like to read, oh, okay, there you go. Tonka would like to read. Go ahead, ma'am. You just need to unmute. There you go. Cause of ill will. By what feathers are our beings bound? Gods, humans, asuras, nagas, danhabas, and whatever other kinds there may be. Whereby, although they aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility, or ill will, and in peace, they yet live in hate, harming one another, hostile and with ill will. Ruler of the gods, it's the bonds of jealousy and material gain that bind beings so that though they aspire to live without hate, harming, hostility or ill will, and in peace they yet live in harming one another, hostile and with ill will. But sir, what gives rise to jealousy and material gain? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? Owning to the presence of what do they arise? Owning to the absence of what do they not arise? Jealousy and material gain, 
ruler of the gods, take rise from happiness and sadness. This is their origin. This is how they are born, how they arise. When they are present, they arise. When they are absent, they do not arise. But sir, what gives rise to being happy and sad? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? Only to the presence of what do they arise? Only to the absence of what do they not arise? They arise, ruler of the gods, from craving desire. Due to the presence of craving desire, they arise. Due to the absence of craving desire, they do not arise. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So here, the Buddha has been documented that during his lifetime, he was teaching all types of different beings, not just humans, but also beings from the heavenly realm as well. So here, this is an individual, a being referred to as the ruler of the gods, who is apparently seeking guidance and understanding from the Buddha about the teachings and what it is that leads to certain things. And this individual, this being, is asking with people aspiring to live in peace, but yet they are being very hateful and harming and hostile and having ill will. What is it that gives rise to this? Why is it that people aspire to live in peace, but yet they have this hate? And the Buddha says, well, it's the bonds of jealousy and material gain. That's what it is. This is what's going on in the mind, that the mind is having this jealousy and this wanting of material gain. So then the same individual, the same being asked, well, what gives rise to jealousy and material gain? Why is it that people have jealousy and want material gain? Then the Buddha says, well, it's because of happiness and sadness, because they're happy when they get material gain and they're sad when they're experiencing jealousy. So now this being asked, well, what gives rise to happiness and sadness? And if you've been studying with me any amount of time, you know the answer to this, that it's craving, desire, attachment. This is the Buddha showing you this connectedness, this conditionality, this causality of one thing leading to another, leading to another, that it's because of craving, desire, attachment that ill will arises. This is where you can understand what's going on in your own mind if you're experiencing any ill will. So that way you can transform it. If you didn't understand what the problem is in the unenlightened mind, you wouldn't actually be able to solve it. So one of the things that the Buddha is doing throughout his teachings is helping you to be able to see what's causing various things to occur in the world, but also within your own mind. And then he's giving you the tools and techniques to remedy that. So here they're tracing back the sadness and happiness back to craving desire attachment and then that is coming from this jealousy and material gain that someone is having and then this is what's producing this harming and hostility and this ill will in the mind now here they're referring to this as fetters a fetter is a taint or a pollution a defilement this is what's binding an individual into the cycle of rebirth and this continuous rebirth and this continuous unenlightened mind when you eradicate the pollutions then the mind is free it's no longer bound up with these strong feelings so here you can understand 
this, and then this is something that you can independently verify. Remember, none of the teachings are to be believed. You're learning, investigating, examining, so that then you can reflect on those teachings to independently verify them, and then you can practice them. You can take a situation where you've been angry or hateful or having hostility or ill will, and you can trace it all the way back to craving desire attachment. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll move on to the next chapter, chapter 62. This one is titled, One Frightened and Terrified of Death, One Not Frightened and Terrified of Death. Brahmin, there are those subject to death that are frightened and terrified of death. But there are also those subject to death that are not frightened and terrified of death. And Brahmin, who are those subject to death that are frightened and terrified of death? Here, someone is not free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for sensual pleasures. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Oh, the central pleasures dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave those central pleasures. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves. He cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone is not free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for the body. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Oh, this body dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave this body. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves. He cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone has not done what is good and wholesome, or made a shelter for himself. But he has done what is evil, cruel, and defiled, unwholesome. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Oh, I have not done anything good and wholesome, nor have I made a shelter for myself. But I have done what is evil, cruel, and defiled, unwholesome. When I pass on, I will meet the appropriate fate. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves, he cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone here is uncertain, doubtful, and unclear about the good, wholesome teachings. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Oh, I am uncertain, doubtful, and unclear about the good, wholesome teachings. He sorrows, suffers, and grieves, he cries, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is frightened and terrified of death. These are the four subject to death that are frightened and terrified of death. In Brahman, who are those subject to death that are not frightened and terrified of death? Here, someone is free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for sensual pleasures, when he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he does not think, Oh, the central pleasures dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave those central pleasures. 
He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This is one subject to death who is not frightened or terrified of death. Again, someone is free of lust, desire, wants, thirst, passion, and craving for the body. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he does not think, Oh, this body dear to me will leave me, and I will have to leave this body. He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone has not done what is evil, cruel, and defiled, unwholesome, but has done what is good and wholesome and made a shelter for himself. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, Indeed, I have not done anything evil, cruel, and defiled, unwholesome, but I have done what is good and wholesome and made a shelter for myself. When I pass on, I will meet the appropriate fate. He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry, beating his breast, and become confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. Again, someone is certain, doubt-free, and clear about the good, wholesome teachings. When he incurs a severe and debilitating illness, he thinks, I am certain, doubt-free, and clear about the good, wholesome teachings. He does not sorrow, suffer, and grieve. He does not cry beating his breast and become confused. This, too, is one subject to death who is not frightened and terrified of death. These Brahmin are the four subject to death that are not frightened and terrified of death. Okay, so by the time you get to enlightenment, you've eliminated any and all fears. There's no fear in the mind whatsoever, even fear of death. And there are certain tools and techniques that you can use in order to liberate the mind of any craving and holding on to this world so that you can get liberated from any fear that you might have related to death. The Buddha is explaining the four reasons why somebody would be terrified of death or frightened or having fear of death. This first one, he talks about someone who has central pleasures, central desire in the mind, that an individual has craving, desire, attachment. This is referring to the six sense bases where the unrelated mind will have central desire, which is a pollution or a fetter or a defilement or a taint, where the mind is longing and yearning through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself, wanting to hold on to things, wanting agreeable contact. And when you get agreeable contact, you get pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. But when you get disagreeable contact through any of the six sense bases, you will experience painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. So if you have central pleasure in your mind or central desire where you're holding on to your house, you're holding on to your car, you're holding on to your relationships, you're holding on to your money, you're holding on to your clothes and your jewelry, not only are you going to be experiencing discontentedness in this life related to these things because the mind doesn't realize they are impermanent, but as you get close to death, 
you'll have a very painful death where you'll have sorrow, you'll suffer and you'll grieve because you're getting close to death and you're realizing that all these things are going to leave you and you can't hold on to them. So this is the first reason why the Buddha is saying that someone will fear death because they're holding on to all these material objects around you. The second thing that the Buddha is referring to is that one has craving for the body, meaning that when they get sick, they're craving for this body to be permanent and be permanently healthy. And now when you become sick, your mind is holding on wanting this body to be permanently healthy when it can't be. So you realize that, oh my goodness, I'm going to need to leave this body. If I die, this body is not permanent. I need to leave it and one can experience this sorrow, suffering, and grieving when they're getting close to death because they're holding on to this body. Then the third one that the Buddha is talking about is that one has done evil, cruel, and unwholesome things. That as you get sick, you realize like, oh my goodness, if I die, I've done evil, unwholesome things. I've done cruel things in the world. And now when I die, I'm going to have to experience the results of whatever I did. Of course, you're experiencing the results of those things in this life, but you're also going to experience that upon death as well. So this is another reason why someone might fear death because they're fearing what might come next based on all the unwholesome things that they've done in this life. And then the fourth reason the Buddha is talking about someone is uncertain or doubtful or unclear about these teachings, that if you don't understand the natural law of gamma, which is the core central teaching of the Buddha, where he's showing you this cause and effect or action and result, as you're getting close to death, you're not clear on these teachings and you may or may not know what is coming up next. And now you're struggling at the time of death where you're going to have this uncertainty in your mind about what may or may not come next. So you might sorrow and suffer and have grief. But for someone who doesn't have any of these four things, the Buddha is saying you're not going to be fearing death because if you're not holding on to central desires or certain pleasures in the world, wanting them to be permanent, if you've let go of those things and you realize all these things are impermanent, so when you get close to death, you're not trying to hold on to them, so therefore you're not going to have suffering because you've already let go of these things. Your mind's already peaceful. And then if you understand that this body is impermanent and that, of course, you're going to need to leave this body, this is the one thing that every single being is required to do. We are required to die. Everything else in the world is optional. It's a choice. And we experience the results of those choices. But in terms of death, we're required to die because we are impermanent. This body is impermanent. But if the mind's clinging and holding on and craving for this body to be permanent, as you get close to death, once again, you'll have sorrowfulness. You will suffer. You will grieve. And the th third one here, the Buddha is talking about if you have not done this evil and cruel and unwholesome things, as you're getting close to death, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to have sorrowfulness. You're not going to grieve because you know you've done wholesome things in the world. And then the fourth one, if you understand these teachings of cause and effect and you see the condition of your mind has drastically improved and you're headed in that direction, the condition of your life has drastically improved, you're headed in that direction, then you don't have any doubt perhaps about these teachings. You've perhaps eliminated the fetter of doubt through investigating and examining the teachings, through learning them intellectually, then reflecting on them to independently verify them, and then practice them to be able to see the truth. And you'll understand this cause and effect. And you'll know by the time you get to death that you're either going to be reborn or 
you're going to not be reborn depending on whether your mind's enlightened or unenlightened. And if your mind is not enlightened and you understand these teachings, then you'll understand even potentially what realm you're going to be reborn into. So you're not going to have this sorrowfulness or this suffering or this grief because you're clear on the teachings. You have certainty about what is or isn't going to happen as you near closer and closer to death. So let me know what questions you guys have on this. There's ways to help you to eliminate this fear, but here the Buddha is just talking about the things that are going to need to exist in the mind in order for you to eliminate the fear. But then there's a tool and technique that we can talk about if you'd like in order to help you understand how to eliminate the fear. Looks like Tonka has a question. Go ahead, ma'am. From what I can tell, uh, I don't have any of those four things, but I'm terrified of the process of dying because working in a medical industry, I've seen so many, so many very, very painful processes of dying, which means people would be in agony and so much pain and misery for so many days, weeks, months. So that's where I have huge fear. I don't have fear of leaving this place or worrying what's going to happen next, if anything, or none of that, like um, sensual desires, none of that. But the process of dying terrifies me. So maybe I mentioned that to you, but I'm still struggling with that. Yeah, so that's still this one. Tonka, this first one, that the mind is wanting to be permanently comfortable. The mind doesn't understand that uncomfortableness of the physical body is part of the impermanence, that you can't permanently be comfortable in the physical body. So I'll share that with you, that it is this first one. But then the other thing I'll share with you is that you've been around a lot of people who don't understand these teachings. You've been around a lot of people who have central desire, a lot of people who are craving and holding on to this body who have potentially done unwise and unwholesome things, who don't understand these teachings. They have all four of these, and that's why their death is very painful. So you observing that, then you potentially are associating the pain that they're experiencing, that you're gonna also experience that as well. But if you can train your mind to eliminate central desire, where you're not holding on to things, and even holding on to wanting things to be permanently comfortable, there's no reason why you will experience a painful death. The way that you eliminate the fear of death is through contemplation of death or reflection on death, that because the mind is craving to exist in the world and not willing to let go, it'll have this fear. So what you do is you confront this by putting the mind in the situation that it doesn't want to be in. Just like if you were afraid of spiders or you're afraid of snakes, I would suggest somebody to look at pictures of spiders and snakes, go visit museums with spiders and snakes, go look at them in a zoo where they're actually alive. This desensitizes the mind to seeing these beings and realizing that there's nothing harmful that's going to happen here, that this doesn't need to have fear in the mind just because there's a fear or just because there's a snake or there's a spider. So the same thing is you can confront your own death by closing your eyes, sitting for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and convincing your mind that you've died and kind of play that out. Like the police or a doctor or nurse has contacted your family and you play that out. What would actually occur? Not that you're planning that or not that you're aspiring to die, but you're like a fly on the wall kind of observing this. 
and someone may grieve they may have sorrowfulness they may you may experience pain while you do this but if you do this two three four five times eventually you'll get to the point where you've just accepted death and you just know like okay that's what's going to happen and there's no need for me to fear it or worry about it instead in the present moment let me just maintain my peacefulness and joy what is going to happen in the future there's no need to fear that if there's no craving for existence and you understand that there's no craving for this body to be permanently comfortable then no matter what transpires at the time of death you can be pain-free is what the buddha is describing and that can occur through reflecting on death and contemplating death and doing this over multiple sessions so you can get liberated from any cravings where the mind is holding on thank you very much yes you're welcome okay it looks like marcy you have a question i actually you answered my question teacher david i was going to ask if the contemplation of death would work if you did it for your own self but you answered that thank you very much yes you're welcome yeah you can use the same technique for yourself if you have fear of death you can use this for other beings as well like if you have children or parents or siblings even pets if you have pets that you are attached to and you're looking to eliminate that attachment so that when it comes close to their death you're not struggling and you don't have pain around this time because this is an ideal time where the human mind can experience this discontentedness and painful feelings because the mind's holding on to this being or holding on to this being who you are so you can train your mind to let go and not even have what tonka was describing where you would fear how you might die and you can eliminate that as well and just play that out and in tonka you might decide to think about many different painful experiences whether it's a car accident or falling off of a building or having cancer and dying slowly over two or three years or some of the most painful things, you can confront that and just play that out in your mind. And then you can see that there's nothing to fear that if this is going to occur, it's going to occur. And you can train your mind to not crave permanent comfort in the body. This is a common one that a lot of people have. That's why the Buddha is teaching here to train your mind to let go of any kind of fear related to death. Here, Mayu Lee is asking a question. Teacher, I tried reflecting on death, but my mind don't want to go there. I even imagined how I died, but my mind just brushed it off. Any suggestions? Yes, keep doing it and keep soaking into it and spend more and more time doing it. That's what the unenlightened mind will tend to do when you're trying to confront a particular craving is it'll try to push it away because this is the aversion that the mind has. It's averse to its own uncomfortable and painful feelings. So it'll try to push a person away or to try to push a situation away. So even when you're trying to play this out in your mind, the mind can try to push it aside. So do it more than once and take your time with it and really soak into the detail of any kind of death that may or may not be envisioned in your mind so that that way you can really confront it and not allow the mind to slip past it okay it looks like marcy either has a question or maybe you're interested in reading actually i have a question and i would like to read the contemplation that you speak of teacher david i know we're speaking it and putting it towards like death of, of a being but can we also use that method of contemplation? Say we have like an important meaning that we have to have with someone. Is it beneficial to the mind to kind of contemplate the, you know, the communications that may take place, 
how people might react before having a meeting? Could we use that type of contemplation for something of that nature as well? You can, but you need to be careful that you don't cling to what it is that you imagine in your mind because you might imagine something in your mind and then it goes completely different. And if you're clinging yeah. to that, those thoughts, then when things start changing, you can experience discontentedness in the meeting. So you can kind of like think through like, what are some various options of things that may or may not occur? What are some various things that you may or may not say? And then once you've done that prior to a meeting, then in the moment, reside in the present moment and wherever the meeting needs to go it just goes and not clinging to anything that you thought about prior to the meeting so maybe probably just reflecting or contemplating about how i may articulate myself versus what other people may react may be more of a beneficial way of contemplating maybe if i kept it more in that kind of channel yeah whenever i've had really impactful meetings what i will typically do is rather than playing it out in detail of exactly how it's going to go, I think about like maybe two or three or four main points of what I would like to communicate. I don't think about the exact wording, but I think about kind of like high level topics or like bullet points. So then in the okay. meeting, I can kind of ebb and flow and kind of put together the words that I need based on that particular topic, but also reading the room and what it is that's going on in the room because you can't really know all the variables of what's going on, like maybe who's going to attend the meeting, what their mental state's going to be, what they're thinking, you know, what is it that you need to talk about first, second, or third. So if you have like these kind of bullet points, then you can kind of dive into that and talk to whatever level of depth you need, but staying in the present moment without having exact wording of exactly what you're planning to say. Because if you're tied to this exact wording, and then you're in the meeting and you can't quite remember what it is you thought about, it'll throw you off and you won't know what to say. So if you just have bullet points, then you can talk through those in a much better way and residing in the present moment and thinking through what would be the wisest things to share in regards to those particular topics. Thank you, Teacher David. That was most mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, let me see if we have any more questions anywhere else. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere else, so we can move on to the next chapter if you'd like to read that, Marcy. Sure. Rare that one attains the human state, monks. Suppose that this great earth had become one mass of water and a man would throw a ring with a single hole upon it. An easterly wind would drive it westward. A westerly wind would drive it eastward. A northerly wind would drive it southward. A southerly wind would drive it northward. There was a blind turtle which would come to the surface once every hundred years. What do you think, monks? Would that blind turtle come to the surface once every hundred years, insert its neck into the ring with a single hole? It would be rare, vulnerable sir, that a blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years would insert its neck into the ring with a single hole. So too, monks, is it rare that one obtains the human state. Rare that a Tathagatha, an arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, arises in the world. Rare that the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagatha shines in the world. You have obtained the human state, monks. A Tathagatha, an arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, has arisen in the world. 
the teachings and the discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata shines in the world. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Marcy. So the Buddha teaches, and you can see here in this teaching, that the human state is the ideal existence to be in. Because in those lower realms of hell, animal, and afflicted spirits, you can't get to enlightenment in those realms. You're going to need to be constantly reborn over and over again until you make it to a human existence or a heavenly existence where you have the opportunity to get to enlightenment. That heavenly realm, it's not permanent, and none of those lower realms are permanent either. In that heavenly realm, it's not an ideal existence because those beings are still in existence and they're in the cycle of rebirth and they need to get to enlightenment. But they oftentimes become complacent because they're experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. It's here in the human realm that we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So we tend to have built-in motivation because we experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and others. We experience boredom and loneliness and shyness and resentment and jealousy. All these feelings that the unenlightened mind is experiencing tend to be built-in motivation because you're uncomfortable with those feelings and you would like to get away from them. So being in the human state is the most ideal existence to be in. So just getting to the human realm, there's a certain amount of wholesome karma that you would have needed to generate just to get here into the human realm. But if you're born into a human existence at the time of a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, an arahant, a tathagata. This is really wholesome gamma because a Buddha is going to have an understanding of the teachings, very deep wisdom to be able to help you get to enlightenment. So the Buddha is using an analogy here to help you be able to understand this. He's talking about if the earth was completely flooded all the way around the earth, if you can imagine the entire globe flooded, and there's the single ring on the surface of the water that's being blown around in all these different directions. And once every hundred years, there's a blind turtle that comes up for some air. What's the likelihood of that turtle putting its head into the ring? And of course, it's very rare. And the Buddha is saying that's how rare it is that you've actually obtained this human state. So now that you've obtained this human state and during his lifetime, there's a Tathagata or a Buddha that has arisen in the world. And because a Buddha has arisen in the world, the teachings are shining in the world, meaning that they're very easy to get access to and be able to learn and develop your practice to get to enlightenment. This is the ideal time to be in an existence. So the Buddha is saying to his students, since all three of these things have come together, that you're in a human state, that a Buddha has arisen and the teachings are shining in the world, you should make an effort to understand the Four Noble Truths. This is the very beginning teaching of the Buddha that he points to countless times in his teachings because that's the beginning of the path. What the path to enlightenment is, is to purify the mind of these pollutions so that you can get to 
this enlightened mental state where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where you've eliminated all discontentedness. But you wouldn't be able to eliminate discontentedness if you didn't understand what the cause and the elimination and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness is. So this is why I start students with the Four Noble Truths as the very first teaching. So he's pointing to that here and saying, hey, this is what you should make an effort to learn because this is the real breakthrough to finally being able to understand why your mind's angry or sad or frustrated or experiencing any of these other discontent feelings. Because in the unenlightened state, we tend to walk around with an unknowing of true reality, with a lack of wisdom of what's truly causing our discontent feelings. And therefore, we blame other people. We push people away. We push the situation away. We become bitter and harsh and hostile. We put our expectations on people trying to control them. And we just stay stuck in this constant round of discontentedness. But when you make an effort to understand the Four Noble Truths and you can see with clarity of exactly what's causing your discontent feelings, then you can actually use the tools and techniques to eliminate them. So that's why he's sharing this here to remind you of how rare it is to be able to get into this human state. So do you guys have any questions here on this chapter? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, it looks like Mayu Lee has a question here. Teacher, although we are not born when the Buddha were born, but us finding his teachings now, is that the same rareness? It's not the same rareness to discover a Buddhist teachings after they've died versus when they're actually alive. If you can live during the same lifetime as a Buddha, this is the ideal time to exist in the world because not only are you human, not only has a Buddha arisen with deep wisdom to be able to guide you and help you get to enlightenment, but their teachings are really shining in the world. So the ideal time to be born would be during the lifetime of a Buddha. So you shouldn't relate that to after a Buddha is dead. Right after a Buddha dies for the first many years, the teachings during Gautama Buddha's lifetime and afterwards, they were quite strong. There was a 500 year period of time where the teachings of the Buddha were still shining in the world, but there wasn't that Buddha there to be able to really help individuals get to enlightenment. But still plenty of people got to enlightenment after his death, but it's not the same rareness as during the lifetime of a Buddha. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. All right, so we'll go to the next chapter, which is chapter 64. It looks like Tonka is raising her hand. If you'd like to go ahead and read that one, ma'am. Beings are few who are reborn among human beings or heavenly beings because they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. Then the perfectly enlightened one took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and addressed the monks thus, what do you think, monks, which is more? the little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great dirt. Venerable sir, the great dirt is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great dirt, that little bit of soil is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So two monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn among human beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn in hell. 
in the animal realm, in the realm of uplifted spirit. For what reason? Because monks, they have not seen the four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to elimination of discontentedness. What do you think, monks, which is more? the little bit of soil in my fingernail, or the great earth. Venerable sir, the great earth is more, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So two monks, those beings are few, who when they pass away as human beings are reborn among the heavenly beings. But those beings are more numerous, who when they pass away as human beings are reborn in hell, in animal realm, in realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because monks, they have not seen the four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentedness, an effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is talking about how rare it is for a human being to be reborn back into the human world or into the heavenly world. And the reason why is because they haven't seen the Four Noble Truths. If you haven't seen the Four Noble Truths, then you have an established right view. If someone has an established right view, the Buddha describes that an individual who dies with wrong view is reborn into hell or the animal realm. And once there, it's like a prison, very difficult to get back out of. So right away, having not understood the Four Noble Truths or having seen the Four Noble Truths with the opportunity to establish right view, beings would die with wrong view and therefore be reborn into hell or the animal realm. But by learning and practicing and understanding and penetrating into the Four Noble Truths, you can establish right view. And then if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason, there's an improved opportunity for you to be reborn back into the human realm, which would be ideal, or into the heavenly realm. So it's the Four Noble Truths which really unlocks that for an individual because it helps you to establish right view, where you're not blaming other people for the feelings that you experience. When one
someone has wrong view, they're going to tend to blame other people for what they experience in life and the feelings that they experience. But once you establish right view and understanding the Four Noble Truths, you will never again be able to ever blame anybody else for the feelings that you experience because you would have seen clearly that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing your discontent feelings. And that's what you can experience when you break through to the Four Noble Truths. And now you can make real efforts to actually eliminating those discontent feelings because you understand the cause of them and you understand the path forward to eliminating them. So any questions on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to the next one. Now we're moving into the heavenly beings. We've been studying hell, animal, afflicted spirit, human realm, and now we're starting to move into the heavenly beings and understanding this realm. This is chapter 65. Okay, this one is titled, The Three Surpassing Respects of the Heavenly Beings. And this is a particular part of the heavenly beings that I can't pronounce. The Buddha segmented hell into many different hells, and he segmented the heavenly beings into many different categories. We tend to think of these as just general hell and heaven, but the Buddha talks about them in much more detail. So here he's talking about this particular type of heavenly being. Monks, in three respects, the heavenly beings of this particular part of heaven surpass the people of Uttarakuru and the people of Jambudipa. Can't pronounce either of those. What three? In heavenly lifespan, in heavenly beauty, and in heavenly happiness. In these three respects, the heavenly beings surpass the people of these two other places. So the Buddha is explaining that a human being in these other two places, they're not experiencing the same thing as these beings in the heavenly realm. In the heavenly realm, you have a very long lifespan. That's what the Buddha is talking about, a heavenly lifespan. I've seen almost minimum of about 500 years is what a heavenly being will experience. And then it can go on even beyond that. And then there's this heavenly beauty in terms of appearance. And then the heavenly happiness. That's the pleasant feelings. That is discontentedness. So these are the three things that beings in these heavenly realm experience. And here, what this particular discourse is helping you do is to start to understand these beings in the heavenly realm. And each one of his discourses, putting this together, you can get a clearer and clearer picture of what's going on in the heavenly realm. Any questions on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll move on to this next one, which is chapter 66. Here, this one is titled, By Reason of Righteous Conduct. Master Gautama, what is the cause and condition? Oh, it looks like Marcy would like to read. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, Teacher David. Master Gautama, what is the cause and condition why some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in prediction, even in hell? And what is the cause and condition why some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in happy destinations, even in the heavenly world? Householders, it is by reason of conduct, not in accordance with the teachings, by reason of unrighteous conduct that some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in a state without best basic necessities in an unhappy destination, 
and prediction, even in hell. It is by reason of conduct in accordance with the teachings, by reason of righteous conduct, that some beings here on the dissolution of the body after death reappear in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. We do not understand the detailed meaning of Master Gotama's spoken words, which he has spoken in brief without explaining the detailed meaning. It would be good if Master Gotama would teach us the teachings so that we might understand the detailed meaning of his spoken words. Then, householders, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Householders, there are three kinds of bodily conduct not in accordance with the teachings unrighteous conduct. There are four kinds of verbal conduct in accordance with the teachings, unrighteous conduct. There are three kinds of mental conduct, not in accordance with the teachings, unrighteous conduct. Householders, there are three kinds of bodily conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. There are four kinds of verbal conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. There are three kinds of mental conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. The detailed meanings at chapter 14, 10 courses of unwholesome comma, disposed in hell, and chapter 45, 10 courses of, of wholesome comma, deposited in heaven of this book. If a householder, one who observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct, should have the objective, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. It is possible that on dissolution of the body after death, he will reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. What is that? Because he observes conduct that is in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. If householders, one who observes in accordance with the teachings, Righteous conduct should have the objective, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the well-to-do Brahmins. In the company of well-to-do householders, in the company of the gods of the heaven of the four great kings, in the company of the gods of the heavens of the 33, the Yama gods, the gods of the Tusata heaven, the gods who excite in creation, the gods who weld power over others, creations, the gods of Brahma's company, the gods of radiance, the gods of limited radiance, the gods of immeasurable radiance, the gods of streaming radiance, the gods of glory, the gods of limited glory, the gods of immeasurable glory, the gods of refugilant glory, the gods of grapefruit, the Avaha gods, the Atapata gods, the Sudasa gods, the Sudasai gods, the Arakatatha gods, the gods of the base of infinite space, the gods of base of infinite consciousness, the gods of the base of nothingness, the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, it is possible that on the dissolution of the body after death, he will reappear in the company of gods of the base of neither perception or non-perception. What is that? Because he observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, right conduct. If householders, 
one who observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct, should have the objective, oh, that by realizing for myself with direct knowledge, experience, I might here and now enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints, it is possible that by realizing for himself with direct knowledge experience, he will here and now enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that that are taintless with the destruction of taints. What is that? Because he observes conduct in accordance with the teachings, righteous conduct. Okay, thank you, Marcy. I apologize with my, my pronunciation on some of those. That's okay. It's challenging since these words were in use back then. So here, the Buddha is describing what leads to rebirth in any particular realm. And here, he's specifically talking about hell, and he's talking about the heavenly world. And he's relating this to what's going on in terms of your moral conduct. Because he teaches moral conduct all throughout his teachings about as we cause harm, then harm comes back to us. And that would be unwise decisions that's leading to unwholesome results or unwholesome karma. But as we make wise decisions that are harmless, now when we put those out into the world, we experience wholesome results because we're making wise decisions or wholesome karma. So here he's talking about rebirth in hell or in heaven is based on your conduct. Well, it's not that there's a being somewhere looking over your life and seeing all the different things that you've done and then deciding at the end of your life whether you go to hell or you go to heaven. That's not what's occurring. But your conduct is based on the condition of your mind, based on the pollutions that you have in your mind. So if you have those 10 fetters, it's going to motivate unskillful conduct. So if there's any kind of pollution in your mind, you're going to be likely to kill or steal, have sexual misconduct, to lie, to take intoxicants, to have wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration. So at the time of death, whatever the condition of your mind is, that's the cause and condition that leads to rebirth in any of the realms. And that was what would determine what realm that you would be reborn into. And here the Buddha is relating this to your conduct and how you choose to conduct yourself in the world. But any decisions that you make about your conduct is coming from your mind that is either polluted or not. So if your mind is fully purified, you're not going to be making unwise decisions around your moral conduct. But if your mind is polluted, then you're going to be making these unwise decisions. So it's based on the condition of your mind at death what is going to be your rebirth or if there is even going to be a rebirth because if you get to enlightenment there's no rebirth in the cycle of rebirth but if you don't get to enlightenment you're going to be reborn in one of the five realms and it's based on the condition of the mind so it's not like if you did some really unwise things as a child or early adulthood and then now you're going to somehow be punished for that there's no punishment or rewards in the teachings of the buddha he doesn't use rebirth in hell or the heavenly world in order to motivate you or incentivize you in order to learn and practice his teachings. He's just explaining true reality of what's truly happening, that based on the condition of the mind at death, which that's going to determine what you've been doing throughout your life based on what's going on in your mind, then you're going to be reborn or not based on the condition of the mind. And that's what he's describing here. So do you guys have any questions on this chapter? 
Looks like Tonka has a question. Go ahead, ma'am. I was just wondering, uh, Teacher David, if how applicable this would be uh, in one case that I'm dealing with presently. I have one resident that has Alzheimer's and she's causing a lot of problems to everybody around her. And other people, they don't understand that it's sickness. So they get into big fights, like there is a lot of issues. Now, because she doesn't remember even what she did a few minutes ago, she's like, what are you talking about? I never did that, you know? So I'm wondering about uh, like those are the consequences of her uh, doing and her actions. But I can't blame her, like, how does it work? Like, she doesn't even remember, and her filters are gone. Like, uh, so how does karma work in that case? Because obviously, some people are not capable of making wholesome decisions, at least the way I see it. Like, she, she's just not equipped with a healthy brain, from what I understand in order to make wholesome decisions. She's paying for that, but uh, mm. I just, uh, I don't know if you have any input in that situation. Sure. The natural law of gamma affects us, whether we're aware of it or not, and no matter what our mental state is, that it's going to affect us. If we make wise decisions, it's going to produce wholesome results, and if we make unwise decisions, it's going to produce unwholesome results. One of the unwise decisions that this person made, unfortunately, is to not train her mind. She wasn't even aware, probably, of these teachings as she was growing up, and now in old age, her mind and her brain has deteriorated to this point where now she's causing all this harm. So the natural law of gamma is still affecting her. And that is part of the natural law of gamma that her mind and her brain has deteriorated to this point because she didn't do what she could have done throughout her life, which was train her mind to improve the condition of the mind. So she's still going to experience the results of those in this life. And then if there's rebirth, she's going to then experience that as well. By the time somebody gets to enlightenment, they won't experience Alzheimer's. They won't have a deterioration of the mind. We typically associate old age with deterioration of the mind because that's typically what you see in the world around you because you're living in a place where these teachings don't really exist. So as people age, it's just kind of thought of that, yeah, everybody's going to deteriorate mentally. But if you've trained your mind and purified the mind, you won't experience the declining of the mental faculty the way that an average person would who hasn't trained their mind. So this is the results of their decisions having not trained their mind. And then any decisions that they're making now, even though they don't really have full capacity of their mind, they're still going to experience the results of those decisions that they're making now and in any future lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Tonka, you have a follow-up? Uh, no, I just wanted to say I can read the next chapter. Thank you for your answer. Oh, okay. Let me see if we have any questions anywhere else. I don't see any questions anywhere else, so if you'd like to go ahead and read. By the way, on this particular chapter, you can see all the different gods that they believed in during the lifetime of the Buddha. You don't need to remember all of this in terms of the cosmology, but it's interesting to see all the different gods that they believed in during that lifetime. Let's see, we'll get all the way to chapter 67. Go ahead, ma'am. Why is one gift not a great fruit and benefit while the other is? Venerable sir, why is it that one gift is not 
of great fruit and benefit while the other is. Here Sariputta, someone gives a gift with expectations, with a bound mind, looking for rewards. He gives a gift, thinking, having passed away, I will make use of this. He gives that gift to ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwelling and lighting. Having given such a gift, with the breakup of the body after that, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings, ruled by the four great kings. Having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. But Sariputta, someone does not give a gift with expectation, with bound mind, looking for rewards. He does not give a gift thinking. Having passed away, I will make use of this. Rather, he gives a gift thinking. Giving is good. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwelling and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body, after that he is reborn in companionship with the Tavatimsa heavenly beings, having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking, giving is good, but rather gives a gift thinking, giving was practiced before by my father and forefather. I should not abandon this and sign family custom. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicle, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after that, he is reborn in companionship with the Yama heavenly beings. Having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking. Giving was practiced before by my father and forefather. I should not abandon this ancient family custom, but rather he gives a gift thinking. I cook, these people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook. He gives that gift to the ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, garlands and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body, after that he is reborn in companionship with the Tusita heavenly beings. Having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking, I cook, these people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook, but rather he gives a gift thinking. Just as he sees of the elders that is, Ataka Vamaka Vamahavani being Vasamita Yamatagi Argirasa Varapaya 
Vasetta, Kassapa, and Bagu helped those great sacrifices, so I will share a gift. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin, food or drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, dwelling, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who excite in creation. Having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give up gift thinking, just as he sees of the elders, that is, Ataka and Bagu, held those great sacrifices, so I will share a gift. But rather he gives a gift thinking. When I'm giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil, calm, and energy and joy arise. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicle, garlands, scents and ointments, bedding, dwellings and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body, after that he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. Having exhausted that karma, the psychic potency, uh, glory and authority, he comes back and returns to this state of being. He does not give a gift thinking. When I'm Giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil, calm, and energy and joy arise. But rather, he gives a gift thinking. It's enhancement of the mind, an accessory of the mind. He gives that gift to an ascetic or a Brahmin, wooden drink, clothing and vehicles, garland scents and ointments, bedding, dwelling, and lighting. Having given such a gift with the breakup of the body, after that he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings of Brahma's God's company. Having exhausted that karma, psychic potency, glory, and authority, he does not come back and return to this state of being. This Sariputta is the reason why a gift given by someone here is not of great fruit and benefit. And this is the reason why a gift given by someone here is of great fruit and benefit. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So the Buddha is teaching about generosity and how to practice generosity. There's an entire book in this book series, volume 13, that is all based on generosity because a generosity is an important part of your practice to train your mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Without generosity, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. Your mind would be selfish and holding on to your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources, being uninterested or unwilling to share with others. But as you're practicing generosity, there might be still some kind of lingering cravings in the mind that maybe as you're moving towards practicing generosity, those things can get in the way of you being able to really fully practice generosity in a way that would lead to your elimination of craving, desire, attachment, and lead to your enlightenment. So the Buddha is describing these situations where practicing generosity doesn't lead to great fruit and benefit. And this first one he's talking about is someone gives gift with expectations. If you're giving a gift with expectations, 
there's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind. There's things that you want out of this gift. So it's important when you're practicing generosity to not give anything with expectations. As long as you're giving something with expectations, there's still a craving in there. Your mind can easily become discontent. So that's one point that he's talking about here. But then he says, okay, someone doesn't give with expectations, but they basically are giving with bound up mind, look for rewards. He does not give a gift thinking, having passed away, I will make use of this. Rather, he gives a gift thinking, giving is good. Okay, so now the person is just thinking, okay, giving is good. That's the thing that this person's doing. Okay, that's still not pure generosity yet. And now the next one is, okay, the person's not thinking about giving is good. This person is thinking, I'm just going to give because my ancestors, my elders, my family members give. So therefore, I'm going to give. This still isn't pure generosity. In each of these situations, the individual is being reborn uh, into the heavenly beings, but then they're coming back to the human realm. Because they were giving, they were able to be reborn in this heavenly realm, but because they weren't giving fully with pure generosity, they're coming back to the human realm. And then here's another one where this person isn't thinking about, I'm giving because of my elders, but because I cook and other people don't cook, I'm going to give and cook because I'm the one who knows how to cook. So in that situation, they're still coming back to the human realm. And the Buddha is now talking about, okay, if you're not thinking about I cook, but instead it's these other beings here that the Buddha is talking about that, okay, I will share a gift with these beings. Again, still, they're returning back to the human realm. And then this next one is that an individual is giving, when I am giving a gift, my mind becomes tranquil. I experience energy and joy. So this is someone who's still giving with selfishness because they want something. They want that tranquility, that calmness, that energy, that joy. And now this isn't pure generosity. So therefore, even though they're reborn into a heavenly realm, they're coming back to the human realm after that. They're not getting to enlightenment in the heavenly realm. But then the Buddha explains to you how to actually practice generosity, that you can understand it's an enhancement of the mind. It's an accessory of the mind. What he's describing here is that it's helping you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. That if you understand that, yes, I'm practicing generosity and my goal here is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. This is the reason why you practice generosity, not all these other superficial reasons that he walked through. So if you can understand that, that you're not wanting anything from any kind of gift that you're giving, whether you're giving it to a teacher or aesthetic, a Brahmin, whether you're giving a gift to anybody in your life, then you would like to do it with the understanding that it's enhancing your mind. It's helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And the Buddha is saying, okay, if you're now doing this, you're being reborn into this heavenly realm, but then you don't come back to the human realm. You're going to attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm. So this is an understanding that you need in order to understand the real fruit and benefit of generosity. And there's a lot of other things that you would be practicing as you're making your way to the heavenly realm. But remember, that's not the ultimate goal, to be reborn in the heavenly realm. The goal is to get to enlightenment in this life so that then you're not reborn anywhere whatsoever. And generosity is an important part of that. So it looks like Tonka has a question. Go ahead, ma'am. 
looks like teacher David uh, like it's still selfish reason if we are uh, doing generosity to eliminate craving uh, and desire from our mind in order to get enlightenment it still sounds selfish like how is it different than uh, uh, practicing generosity in order to to get calm and joy I just don't see a lot of distinguish there because it's still isn't that still selfish if I'm doing generosity in order to get rid of my cravings so I may become enlightened and not be reborn? Getting to enlightenment is one of the most selfless things that you could do. What is selfish would be to remain unenlightened and continuing to cause harm in the world. By getting to enlightenment, you're eliminating any pollution in your mind, you're eliminating any unwise decisions that is causing harm in the world. So by you choosing to practice generosity, understanding that this is enhancing your mind, understanding this is helping you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, because when you're making decisions through craving, desire, attachment, your decisions are going to be selfish because craving, desire, attachment is that selfishness, those selfish desires. So if you're letting go of craving, desire, attachment, now you're getting to more and more of a pure mind, an unconditioned mind where you're no longer making decisions through selfishness. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, Marcy, you have a question or are you interested to read? I do have a question and I am interested in reading. Okay. Uh, whenever someone else does not like to want to read, I will read. question to you is that there's times when I'm going to meditate and the mind seems overactive and then I start to, you know, I'll classify it as a mantra. Well, I'll tell the mind, you know, the most beneficial thing you can do right now is to meditate. The most beneficial thing you can do for the world is to meditate. So in referencing here where it's saying that by generosity is the, the an enhancement of the mind, is that kind of like someone like like a parallel of, of like convincing the mind? I, can, I don't know if convincing is a good word, but getting the mind to kind of be invigorated to practice generosity, to practice meditation. Does that question sound, is, am I coming across okay? I don't yeah, know. I understand what you're sharing. The way that I see it, and I think what you're trying to get to is by understanding that practicing generosity is an enhancement of the mind, it's to be able to see true reality. That's what the Buddha is guiding us to in all of his teachings, no matter what he's teaching you, is to be able to see true reality. This practice of generosity, what is it really producing? What is the ultimate thing that is really the fruit and benefit of this practice of generosity? Well, it's to enhance your mind. That's the true reality of it. Whereas if we insert any other thing besides that, then the mind is not seeing true reality. So the same thing is true with meditation, that if you can see true reality of what meditation is really producing, which you've named a couple of those things, then that's being able to see true reality of what this meditation is really doing. And yes, it can motivate you to now do those things if that's what you're able to see the true reality of what this is truly producing that can be a motivator for you if that's the way you choose to use it thank you teacher david yeah you're welcome looks like mayu lee has a question here if we give financial support to buy food or pay for shelter is that considered gift with craving so 
to determine whether you're giving a gift that has craving in it is based on your mind and any expectations. So if you're giving a financial support to buy food and pay for shelter and you don't have any expectations of wanting anything back for that, you're giving it to somebody else to pay for food or shelter. You don't want anything from it. You're just giving it and letting them use it for whatever they would like to use it for. And even if you say this is for food and shelter, but they choose to use it for something else, if you have no expectation, then you should be just fine. Maybe they decide to use it for shoes or socks or something like this. And if you have no expectations, you should be completely fine with that. So it's based on what's going on in your own mind that you don't have any expectation or any craving or desire of what should or shouldn't happen with these particular funds. It's like when you make an offering of generosity, it's like done, over with, it's out of my hands. It's no longer part of what I have. I've given this away and whatever happens with that, I'm completely fine with it 100%. And that's what you would like to be able to get to in order to practice pure generosity. All right. Sorry for my throat here. I'm still getting over this sickness. Tonka, you have a question? Yes. I was wondering if, if we are making a decision before we make a decision, if we think, is it a win-win situation for all human beings? Would that help? For example, in the situation of doing meditation and generosity in order to get rid of the craving, it would be a win for myself and everybody else around me or any other decision before I would make a decision. If I think, okay, is it for the best of all concern, like then it wouldn't be selfish, like it would include this being, but everybody else, like if a situation is win-win, would that be a right way to think before making a decision? You can think of it that way. Just be sure you don't have any expectations of what that win looks like, right? If you have an expectation of what that win or what that success looks like, there's still craving and expectation there. But just, yeah, yeah. just look, beneficial. Yeah, just looking at a situation and saying, what would be best for everybody involved? This is to get to wise decision making if it's harmless decisions, right? Because you would like to ensure that you're not making any harmful decisions and a harmful decision will come from one's own mind of craving anger and ignorance but if you practice discernment and wise decision making you can get to a point where it's helpful for everybody that's involved and you can see the true clarity and see things as it truly is okay thank you sir mm -hmm. you're welcome okay so I'm not seeing any other questions. So Marcy, if you'd like to read this next one, this is chapter 68. Having fulfilled and not having fulfilled one's duty towards the Aztecs, ordained practitioners. Monks, last night, when the night had advanced, a number of heavenly beings of stunning beauty, illuminating the entire Jeddah Grove, approached me, paid homage, respect to me, and stood to one side. Those heavenly beings then said, in the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them, but did not pay homage, respect to them. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. 
some other heavenly beings approached me and said, in the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them and paid homage, respect to them, but we did not offer them seats. Not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were reborn in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, in the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them, paid homage, respect to them, and offered them seats. But we did not share things with them to the best of our ability and capacity. But we did not share things with them to the best of our abilities and capacity. We shared things with them to the best of our ability and capacity, but we did not sit close by to listen to the teachings. We sat close by to listen to the teachings, but we did not listen to it with eager ears. We listened to it with eager ears, but having heard it, we did not retain the teachings in mind. Having heard it, we retained the teachings in mind, but we did not examine the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in the mind. We examined the meaning of the teachings that had been retained in the mind, and we did not understand the meaning of the teachings and then practice in accordance with the teachings, not having fulfilled our duty, full of regret and remorse, we were born in an inferior class of heavenly beings. Some other heavenly beings approached me and said, in the past, venerable sir, when we were human beings, monks approached our homes. We rose up for them, paid homage respect to them, offered them seats and shared things with them to the best of our ability and capacity. We sat close by to listen to the teachings and listen to it with eager ears. Having heard it, retained the teachings in the mind. We examined the meanings of the teachings that had been retained in the mind. And we understood the meaning of the teachings and then practiced in accordance with the teachings. Having fulfilled our duty free of regret and remorse, we were reborn in a superior class of heavenly beings. These are the feet of trees, monks. These are empty huts. Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent. Do not have cause to regret it later, like those prior heavenly beings. Okay, thank you, Marcy. So here, the Buddha is giving us some insight on why a being is reborn into an inferior class of heavenly beings or a superior class. And he's talking about this in relationship to generosity and practicing the generosity as it relates to teachers who are sharing the teachings that are going to help others to be able to get to enlightenment. So I think this is pretty straightforward here. The Buddha is on record for having taught heavenly beings during his lifetime. Here you can see it documented that the sky had lit up and it had illuminated and the Buddha was teaching during this time frame where heavenly beings were coming and sharing with him why they were reborn in one particular category of heavenly beings or another. And ultimately, he gets to some heavenly beings that shared the reason why they were reborn in the superior class of heavenly beings. But always keep in mind, the goal is not to be reborn in heaven. So whenever you're seeing something like this, the same things that lead to rebirth into the heavenly realm are the same things that lead to enlightenment as well. So you would like to practice what it is that's being shared here, that as you're encountering individuals who are sharing the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha's saying, okay, that as people approach your homes, 
Rise up and pay respect to them. Offer them seats. Share things to them with the best of your ability and capacity. Sit close by and listen to the teachings. Listen with eager ears. Having heard it, retain the teachings in the mind. Examine the meaning of the teachings that have been retained and understand that meaning and then practice in accordance with the teachings. And then you can be free of regret and remorse that you've come in contact with these teachers that are being able to share the teachings with you. And now having done these things, you can be free of regret and remorse. And should you need to be reborn, the Buddha is saying, okay, you'll be reborn in this improved state of heavenly beings. But the goal would be to do the work now and be sure that you don't experience complacency. Do the work in this life to meditate and learn all the teachings and develop your mind so you can get to enlightenment and escape the cycle of rebirth in this human state. That's the ultimate goal is to not be reborn anywhere at all. Any questions on this, you can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. Oh, Tonka, is that to read or a question? I can read, teacher, David. Okay, this is chapter 69. Go ahead, ma'am. Reappearance in accordance with one's objectives. Monks, I shall teach you reappearance in accordance with one's objectives. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Here, monks, a monk possesses confidence virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after that, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after that, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Brahmins. Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after that, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Householders. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and these residing of his thus developed and cultivated lead to his reappearance there. This month is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the heaven of the four great kings are long-lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods of the heaven of the four great kings. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. Those objectives and this residing of his thus developed and cultivated lead to his reappearance there. This month is the path, the way that leads to a reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the heaven of the 33, the Yama gods, the gods of Tusita heaven, the gods who excite in creating, the gods who wield power over others' creations are long-lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods who wield power over others' creations. He fixes his mind on that, 
determined upon it, develops it. The objectives and this residing of his thus developed and cultivated lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of a thousand is lonely, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now the Brahma of a thousand resides determined on permeating a world system of a thousand worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. Just as a man with good sight might take gold plant growth that resembles a nut in his hand and review it, so the Brahma of thousand resides determined on permeating a world system of a thousand, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. The monk thinks oh, that on dissolution of the body after that, I might read. Oh, we lost her. Marcy, would you like to pick up there? I might reappear in the company of a Brahma of the thousand. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, leads to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of 2000, the Brahma of 3000, the Brahma of 4,000, the Brahma of 5,000 is long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now, the Brahma of 5,000 resides determined on permeating the world system of 5,000 worlds. He resides determined in permeating the beings that have reappeared here. Just as a man with good sight may, might take five gall nuts, plants grown resemble the nuts, in his hand and review them, so the Brahman of 5,000 resides determined and permeating a world system of 5,000 worlds. And he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. The monk thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the Brahma of 5,000. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it, these objectives, and this reside of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma of 10,000 is long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now, the Brahma of 10,000 resides determined on permeating a world system of 10,000 worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. Just as fine, barely gem uh, composed of burlum, aluminum, costalate, and rare storms of purest water, eight faceted, well-cut, lying on red brocade, glows, radiates, and shines. So the Brahma of 10,000 resides determined on permeating the world system of 10,000 worlds and resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there.
the monk thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the Brahma of 10,000. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his thus developed and cultivated lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Tonka has reappeared. Again, <laughs> yeah. Tonka, would you like to continue to read? Yeah. Uh, then, uh, my, my laptop wasn't plugged in. That's okay. You're more than welcome to continue reading if you would like. I just don't know where I stopped. Oh, uh, ready to come up. Uh, okay, okay. I can, I can. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Again, among possesses possesses confidence, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the base of infinite space, the gods of base of infinite consciousness, the gods of the base of nothingness, the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception are long-lived, long-enduring, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks oh, that on the dissolution of the body, after that, I might reappear in the company of the gods of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and these residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to a re reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that by realizing for myself the direct knowledge experience, I might here and now enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. And by realizing for myself, direct knowledge experience he here and now enters upon and resides in the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints monks this monk does not reappear anywhere at all thank you marcy and tonka so when i read a discourse like this i'm looking for what can i extract and practice in order to get to an improved mental state, this enlightened mental state, or if needed, this improved rebirth. So what you see the Buddha talking about over and over in this discourse is someone possessing confidence, virtue, which is moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. That's what it, you would like to cultivate. All that extra stuff that is being shared is interesting, but this is what it really boils down to is getting to this confidence. And what the confidence is, is confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. This is the opposite of that fetter of doubt. You would like to cultivate this confidence in the teachings. And the way that you accomplish that is by investigating and examining the teachings to learn them, reflecting on them to independently verify them and practice them. So cultivating confidence is going to lead to improved condition of mind. Then one of the things you're learning in the teachings is the moral conduct right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And you're doing that through learning. 
and you need to practice generosity. The giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any given situation without any expectation of anything in return. And all of this leads to wisdom where you know the truth, that you're not functioning on belief. Because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. But when you can learn, reflect, and practice, you can get to wisdom and you know the truth with 100% certainty. And that's what leads to liberation of mind to this enlightened mental state. And then you won't reappear anywhere at all. All of this other stuff about reappearing places, that's not what the Buddha taught to aspire for. What you would like to do is get to what he's talking about here where you don't reappear anywhere at all. So this is how you can look at a discourse like this is extrapolate what is it that you can take away from this and practice today that's going to lead to an improved condition of mind and an improved condition of life, getting you closer and closer to enlightenment. The other thing that you can take from a discourse like this, like look how many pages this was and how long it took us to actually read it. Think about a Buddha's mind who is talking about this and who's teaching this. He's sharing this from his memory. He's recounting this through his own memory that these are things that he understood in getting to enlightenment. And he was able to teach this word for word for word for word for word. Then his students needed to remember this, that their mind had to be clear enough to remember it. And then they had to write it down after his death. So this shows you how well the enlightened mind is functioning. For one, a Buddha to be able to speak this way and to actually teach it for his students to remember it and then for them to be able to write it down. Because just reading it here, you can see that sometimes you might stumble over the words, but these people were remembering these teachings and teaching them. And that really shows you the crispness and the clarity of the enlightened mind and what it is that you're working towards. So if you guys have any questions on this, you can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically, and I'll see that. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions. So we'll move on to the very last one for today, which is Chapter 70 in Volume 11. And I suspect Marcy would like to volunteer to read that one. Yes, thank you, Teacher David. Sure. Eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. Monks, there are these eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. What eight? Here, someone gives a gift to an Aztec or a Brahmin, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, incense ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He sees affluent Kayatis, affluent Brahmins, affluent householders enjoying themselves furnished and endowed with the five objects of sensual pleasure. It occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with affluent kayatiyas, affluent Brahmins, or affluent householders. He sets his mind on this, fixed in his mind on this, and develops this state of mind. That objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in the companionship of affluent kayatis, affluent Brahmins, affluent householders, and that is for one who is virtuous, practice moral conduct. I say, not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. 
someone else gives a gift to an Aztec or Brahmin, food and drink and lightning, whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He has heard the heavenly beings ruled by four great kings are long lived, beautiful, abound in happiness. It occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops the state of mind. The objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. And that is for one who is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, I say, not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. Someone gives a gift to an Aztec or a Brahmin, food and drink and lightning. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He has heard the T heavenly beings, the Yama heavenly beings, the Tusata heavenly beings, the heavenly beings who excite in creation, the heavenly beings who control what is created by others are long lived, beautiful, and bound in happiness. And it occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this, and develops the state of mind. The objective of his, determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings control what is created by others. And that is for one who is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, I say not for one who is immoral. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. Someone else gives a gift to an Aztec or a Brahmin, food and drink and lightning. Whatever he gives, he expects something in return. He has heard the heavenly beings of Brahma's gods company are long lived, beautiful and bound in happiness. And it occurs to him, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be born in the companionship of the heavenly beings of Brahma's gods company? He sets his mind on this, fixes his mind on this and develops the state of mind. That objective of his determined on what is inferior, not developed higher, leads to rebirth there. With the breakup of the body after death, he was reborn in the companionship of the heavenly beings of Brahma's God's company. And that is for one who is virtuous, practicing moral conduct. I say, not for one who is immoral, for one without craving, not one with craving. The heart's objective of one who is virtuous succeeds because of his purity. These monks are the eight kinds of rebirth on account of giving. Okay, thank you, Marcy. So here you can see the Buddha prioritizing generosity, that he talks about this in many parts of his teachings because it's helping you to accomplish one of the main goals, which is eliminating craving, desire, attachment. All of this rebirth into heavenly realms and things like this, or even into human realm with a certain affluent individuals and affluent population of people, 
if I was you, I would just set that aside because I would encourage you to focus on getting to enlightenment. And it's generosity that's going to help you to do that. So here the Buddha is helping you to see that, okay, if you're practicing generosity and you fall short of enlightenment, there's these improved rebirths. But that shouldn't be your ultimate goal. The ultimate goal should be to get to enlightenment in this life so then you can leave behind the cycle of rebirth, experience the liberation of mind, the peace and the joy in this life, and then you can enjoy the rest of this life in that enlightened mental state and not experience rebirth anywhere in the cycle of rebirth. Any questions on this chapter? Okay, Mayuli is saying, teacher, are you able to see my question? Okay, yeah, I do see a question here. As I mentioned before, I have confidence in the Buddha, confidence in you in the terms of confidence in the community. I have confidence in whoever are diligent and practice the Buddhist teachings will only improve their life. Is that considered as having confidence in the community? Let's see. It sounds like that's what that is, uh, Mayuli. What confidence in the community is, is that you have confidence in your fellow community members. Like you are learning on Facebook, and that tends to be where you learn is through the live streams, but you hear about Marcy and Tonka and Francis and other people who are part of our community. You have confidence in them that they're supportive, they're encouraging, they're motivating, they're interested in seeing you get to enlightenment just as much as they're interested in seeing themselves get to enlightenment. And now everybody in the community is supporting each other and encouraging each other that where somebody is having challenges, then a person is there to perhaps support you and help you. If you can get help from the teacher, of course, you can reach out to the teacher. But also, as you spend time around other members of the community, you can see them being polite and kind and friendly and respectful. And you can learn through other people's actions, not necessarily overtly sitting down with them and asking them to explain the Four Noble Truths to you, which is what you would do with your teacher. But if you see someone being polite, kind, friendly, respectful through their speech, their actions, or something like this, you're like, oh, I really like how Tonka and Marcy volunteered to read and how they helped each other. Or you might come on some of these excursions that I have during the retreats and see how people practice generosity with each other and be like, wow, I really like how they're doing that. And that's how you can learn from the community is through the actions of other people. And you can assimilate what it is that they're learning in the in the classes and then they're putting it into their practice you can learn by how other people are practicing and that's having confidence in the community knowing that this community is a community that investigates the teachings and that is practicing the straight way or the upright way which is what the buddha describes so maybe you haven't had enough interactions with members of the community yet to have that confidence but more and more perhaps you will and that's what it means to have confidence in the community, that you know that they're there to support you and you can gain insight from other members by just observing how they practice the teachings. Tonka, you have a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes, um, maybe not directly uh, relevant to what we uh, were reading right now, but I was reflecting a little bit on love. And I came to the conclusion that love is not a feeling, that love is a state of mind. So I was just wondering if you could give me a feedback on that. Is it how you would perceive it? Or it just seems that it's state of being. Because every feeling is seems to be conditional. They all arise, last for a while, and then they are gone. So would you say that love is state of being? 
it's a state of mind. It's a mental quality. Yep, you're right. That That's the way I teach true love is that it's a mental quality. It's unconditioned. So love is not a feeling because a feeling is conditional. What people tend to talk about with love it's a craving, desire, attachment that's producing a feeling and they're misunderstanding love. But when you understand what true love is, then yeah, you come to the conclusion that you've come to, which is it's a mental quality that you're practicing and it's unconditioned. And that's why true love can be permanent, that people don't have to do anything for you to fall in love with them. So therefore, no matter what they do, you can't fall out of love with them. So if you're practicing true love, you just love people meaning that you would like to see this being be well, whether it's a human or an animal or any other being, you can just love all beings where you have unconditional love. They didn't have to do anything to earn your love. So therefore it's just always there and there's nothing they can do for you to stop loving them. It's a mental quality. And then there's going to be certain actions that you might take due to that mental quality of love. But nonetheless, it's a mental quality versus a feeling because feelings arise they change and then they fade away where love doesn't do that. True love doesn't do that. Also, joy and peace. Like seems all those qualities that we're trying to reach, they, they are not feelings. Like same as peace and joy. Mm-hmm. Can we say joy and peace are same as love, like um, mental states? Exactly. These are all mental states, mental qualities that the mind has cultivated in their unconditioned. And that's why they're permanent, because they're unconditioned, that there's no condition that's producing the peace or the joy or the love. So therefore, it's just persistent and permeating in the mind all the time, because there's no condition that needs to exist for that to reside in the mind. And then if we are experiencing the pain, bodily pain, we still can have that underlying tone of peace and joy, even though we are experiencing some challenging circumstances. Yeah, on your way to enlightenment, since you haven't fully eradicated the pollutions, there's still going to be some conditioned feelings, but you can start seeing these glimpses of that unconditioned peace and calm, serenity, contentedness and joy. You can see the love starting to shine through. So you start getting kind of like an hour or a day or a week or a month where the mind is experiencing these qualities, but then because they're still craving anger and ignorance in the mind, then you kind of get discontent at some point. But then once you cut off those cravings and you eliminate those from the mind, boom, here comes the peace again. Like, whoa, isn't that nice to have that back, right? And eventually when you get rid of all the pollution of mind, that's what you'll experience is those mental qualities of peace, calm, serenity, contentedness with joy that is just always going to be there. And because of that, you'll also be practicing the healthy mental states of loving kindness, which true love is. You'll be practicing and having your mind this compassion that is just always there. You'll have the sympathetic joy and the equanimity that's just always there. The light's always on. But on the way to enlightenment, it'll kind of flicker at different times and you'll be getting glimpses of this 
whether it's a minute, an hour, a day, a week, a month, two or three months, and then here comes a little bit of discontentedness, but you'll know what that is. It's from your craving, you'll eliminate it, and then as soon as you do, the peace and the joy will come back in, and eventually it'll just be permeating in the mind all the time, where it'll be six months, one year, two years, three years, you haven't had any discontentedness whatsoever because you've eliminated all the pollution. Okay, thank you very much, teacher David. Yes, you're welcome. I see Mayuli has shared a comment here. She's saying, thank you, teacher. Based on what you mentioned, I do have confidence in the community. Thank you. Okay, that's great. All right, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So I will just end by reminding you guys that next week we're going to be in the next 10 chapters, which is chapter 71 through 80. So you're always welcome to read those either before or after class. And we're going to study those in class together like we did here, making our way through this book, The Realms of Existence, which is volume 11 of the book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. So we're going to be doing that next week on Saturday. And remember, I do that at 9 a.m. and I do it at 9 p.m. 9 a.m. I'm doing it from the temple, live streaming that and having Zoom as well. And then at 9 p.m. I do it from here at home. And then tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in volume one, chapter 21, which is titled Do No Harm. What is the future of our planet? I'm going to have a discussion here in the morning at the temple and then also online in the evening with the students about the planet and helping us to come together with some understanding of that. And then on Wednesday, we'll be doing the guided loving kindness meditation and opening up to any and all questions that you guys have. So you're always welcome to join that as well. So thank you to Marcy and Tonka for reading. I really appreciate you guys doing that. It helps me to kind of save my voice. I've been teaching a whole, whole lot over the last several weeks. So thank you guys for that. And uh, thank you all for attending. Thank you for deciding that today's a day you'd like to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. Perhaps I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.